Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you guys so much for joining us in worship this morning. Kids, you can be released. So if you are up through fifth grade, you can make your way right out here to the back. And for the rest, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 14. If you have uh, the scripture journal, you'll find that on page, the bottom of page 84 uh, there for us this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning because we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark. And just in case you're, you're stepping in in the middle of this series, or, or maybe you're even new to the, the gospel of Mark, I want to just shape where we've been up to this point. Because chapter 1, verse 1, tells us the main goal of what Mark's gospel is. And it says this, the beginning of the gospel, which literally means good news, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. Like that, if you will, is the thesis statement that the rest of the book is framed off of. Chapters 1 through 8 are really answering the question, who is Jesus? This man. We, we see him healing people. We see him uh, teaching with authority. Who is Jesus? And in chapters 1 through 8, it covers a span of three years. And then we get into this latter half of chapter 8 through chapter 10. And then it's answering the question, what does it mean for this Jesus to be the Son of God? What does it mean for Jesus to be called the Messiah? What does that mean? And that covers another six months of ministry before Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. And then in chapters 11 through 16 is the, the third and final act in Mark's gospel. It spans just one week, right? And we see what does it mean then for Jesus to be enthroned as king? How is this going to take place? What's going to happen? And, and what we've seen is the Gospel of Mark in, in many ways has been paced like an action film. It started slow. It, it built up. But then here at the back end, it, it, it's going just one week. It's as if everything is in slow motion. And then today, it's like you add this countdown timer that builds the tension, like the bomb that's going to go off and it begins counting down two days before Passover. Then unleavened bread, like the feast has started, the day is coming, and it's like you're waiting, is this bomb going to go off? And the reality is, it is. They will not stop it, and everything will be changed because of it. This is the tension that we're stepping into. And sometimes it can be hard to feel that when we're going through at such a slow pace. But I don't want us to lose sight of what's happening here. Today, then, we're going to see that in the midst of this, in the midst of this storyline of who Jesus is, why he came, what's happening, we're going to see three different responses to the story of Jesus. Different people can experience the same event very differently, right? come to completely different conclusions, have completely different feelings, even though it's the same exact event. Like, all we have to do is look at the past 19 months, right? The, the pandemic, vaccines, politics, pick a thing. And we've seen how different people who have gone through the same situation have responded completely different. Friends and family. It's like a kaleidoscope of reactions to the same thing. 
What we're going to see today is there's this one storyline, this one set of events that's happening, but there's these three responses that we're going to see surrounding that one event. And, and I believe that the Gospel of Mark, it's intending for us to read these together. Like if you want to know the fancy word, it's called an intercalation. So if you want to sound smart, you can use that word. Now, if you want to do the fun thing that you'll actually remember, it's called a story sandwich, right? That's essentially what it means. Mark is making a sandwich of three different stories, and they're meant to be eaten together. You have the two sides, the the bread, these two parts of a story, and what's in the middle is where the focus is. And as we read it, it's intended and it's written in such a way that we're meant to compare and contrast. We're not just supposed to say, and this event happened, and this event happened, and this event happened, and the pastors are putting it all together. By the way it's written in the literary style, it's meant to be taken together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, because it's not just about what happened. It's a story about how people responded. And I believe it's being told in such a way that it's meant to examine our own hearts. Like we're supposed to say, how am I going to respond today? What's being exposed of my own heart because of how they responded? And so let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, I thank you for this time we have this morning to open your word. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that it would read us. Lord, that we wouldn't just learn information, but that we would surrender to the working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Would you help our ears to hear the truth of the beauty of who Jesus Christ is? Lord, we can't do this in our own power. I can't preach in my own power. We can't listen in our own power. We desperately need you. So Lord, would you speak? Would you move for the glory of your name? And in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me. We're going to go through this rather slowly this morning in Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. And and look at, again, that's on the bottom of page 84 if you have the, the scripture journal. If you don't have one, you can grab one after the service in the back. But it says, it was now two days before Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a simple verse, right? Like, get on with the story. We have a time frame. Let's move on. But The reality is this simple verse is loaded with meaning. And if we jump too quickly to how people respond, we could miss what they're actually responding to. I don't want us to assume that we understand what they're responding to. Like, what is this? Like, these these feasts, these festivals, what's being celebrated? Because this helps us understand the central theme that is playing out in the life of Jesus. Like, we can go all the way back to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, He created the heavens and the earth, right? He created the world. He created people with absolute and perfect harmony. There was no sickness, no sin, no rebellion. There was peace between man and God and between men. That's how things were created. But then we know that in Genesis 3, there was the fall. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And that brought disharmony. 
disharmony between man and God. It brought disharmony between men. There was now sin and brokenness in the world, and that sin grew to the point where men worked together in rebellion against God. They thought they could be themselves like God, and they wanted to build this massive tower in their own honor. And God, in judgment, dispersed the people into ethnicities and nationalities and languages across the face of the earth. And then we see the roots of redemption that were spoken in the garden begin to grow. To a man named Abram, he said, from you, I am going to make a great nation, and from you, you will be a blessing to all peoples. From you will come a Savior, one who will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that's where it begins. From one man comes a nation. From a nation will come a Savior. And from one Savior, all people will be blessed. But here's the thing. God was faithful to His Word, and the nation began to to grow, the nation of Israel from Abraham. But then that nation found themselves enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out for mercy. Lord, free us from this bondage. And God heard their cries. And through Moses, God sent ten plagues on the nation of Egypt to break the will of Pharaoh to free the people. And the tenth and final plague was a judgment, an angel of death that would kill the firstborn male of every household. Here's what pastor and author Tim Keller says of that. He says, God unsheathed the sword of divine justice. And this justice would fall on everyone. It couldn't just pass over the Jewish nation simply because they were Jews, right? In every home in Egypt of both Jew and Egyptian alike, someone would die under the wrath of God's justice. The only way for your family to, be, to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, it meant that you would kill a lamb and place its blood on the doorframe. And in trusting God's substitute, in trusting God's provision, the angel of death would pass over. And in every home that night, there would either be a dead firstborn male or a dead lamb. When justice came down, it fell on Jew and Egyptian alike unless you hid under the shelter of God's provision. If you accept this shelter, then the angel of death passed over. And this is where the remembrance came. This is where the holiday was instituted by God. Remember this day when God passed over judgment, when you hid in my provision of a lamb. Simultaneous to this what was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where he said, remove all leaven, don't eat it, remove it from the home. It, it was a sign of sin in the life. Remove all of it. Walk in repentance. Seven days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it became a time of remembrance that we are saved only on the basis of faith 
in a substitutionary sacrifice by the power of God. Now think of that. This is what was instituted way back in the Old Testament. And then when John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching, do you remember the words that are recorded? When it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see? This is the one who was promised from the line of Abraham and through, who would be a blessing to all peoples, God's final provision, the substitute in whom we hide for all time. This is who Jesus is. This is who He was claiming to be as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the promised one. In just a few days, He was going to lay down His life to once and for all be the final sacrifice. And we will either hide under the shelter of His holiness, or we will stand on our own before a holy God. This is what people are responding to. This is what people are hearing. This is what they're seeing unfold. And this is then how they are responding. In Mark 14, halfway through verse 1, it says, And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. See, this is the first part of that three-part story sandwich. This is the, the first side. And I want you to see a distinction between the outward appearance of religious leaders and what's happening in their heart, because this is a theme we're going to see through all their stories, right? Like, outwardly, who are these men? Just leaders. The holidays are upon them. This is like the Independence Day for the nation of Israel. This is a time of repentance and rejoicing as they remember God's provision. What was supposed to be happening? This is what was on their tongues. This is how they were outwardly leading people. Then inwardly, they're plotting the murder of Jesus. With stealth, it says. It means like jealousy, the, the treachery, the deceit, and murder. They appeared to be worshiping God before the people, but in reality, their hearts had this murderous intent that they were hiding as they met at night in the chief priest's house. And we see then this private side of them, the deadly intentions in this tangled web of power and fear that had gripped their hearts. Because, see, they hated Jesus. Jesus came in and he cleansed the temple. They tried to trap Jesus and he made them all look like fools. He has to die. Why? Because they want to be in charge. They want the power. They want the position. It's their own pride that's causing them to say, I will not stand under the shelter of God's provision. I will stand on my own. This is about me. I got this. Follow me. And, and, and while they want power, they're also what's motivating that, what's driving them is fear, right? Because they don't want people to know what's really in their hearts. They don't want people to know. They're not publicly saying, we really need to get rid of this Jesus. No, they're like, can we wait to after the feast? Because if people know what we're trying to do now and we do it, they're not going to follow us. And that's going to undermine the power I want. I want people to follow. I want people to listen to me. 
And so privately, they're being motivated by fear so that they can hold on to their position and their power. This is the first part, but now stands in stark contrast. We see in verse 3. And while he, being Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Let's just stop there for a moment. There's so many things here that we can compare and trust. As we look at the other gospel accounts, we know that the the chief priest and the scribes, they were meeting at the chief high priest's house. It actually says in his palace in the gospel of John. So while the religious leaders are meeting in a palace, Jesus is meeting in the home of Simon the leper, most likely someone whom Jesus has healed. And now he's reclining at a table of someone that others would have had no contact with. Do you see the difference in settings? And now we have this woman approach. Again, the Gospel of John tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Martha in Lazarus, who once again is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Poured it on his head. John says that that she also poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. There's several things that I want you to see here. That just through study and looking at the different accounts. This pure nard, it's not just a regular perfume. It's not something you can get in in Jerusalem. It can only be found from a specific flower that grows on the Himalayan mountains. It's extracted from the roots of the plant. It was about 11 and a half ounces. Think of a soda can worth of ointment that she poured out. In today's economy, in this community, today, it would be valued at $80,000. Now, if you want to know how I came up with that number, you can ask me afterwards, but $80,000. And she poured it out. Now, this wasn't just about the value of it. Like, wow, that's a lot of money. For her, most likely, and most scholars believe, this would have been her dowry. This would have been her inheritance. This was her nest egg. This was the security blanket. This is if everything goes bad, I have this to fall back on. And she didn't just give Jesus a little bit of her best. She broke the alabaster flask and she poured it all out publicly. This private devotion where her heart was before God, she she laid aside her own dignity. It wasn't even appropriate for a woman to be reclining, sitting at Jesus' feet while they're eating. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have been doing this. By culture and in other people's eyes, she laid aside her dignity. She laid aside how other people were going to perceive her because her heart was overflowing in surrender to Jesus to say, here's my everything. I got nothing else. It's the most valuable thing I have. There's nothing else to fall back on. There's no other security I have other than Christ. 
and with her heart completely exposed, completely laid out there, I wonder how she heard the verbal attack that was about to come. When it says one of the disciples said there were some who said to themselves, and it was with indignity. It it literally means they snorted like angry horses. You, You can almost hear it, can't you? Why was this ointment wasted like that? How could she just pour it out? Why are you wasting something of such value on him? Just pouring it on his feet? Don't you know how many people we could have fed with that? $80,000. And you just dump it on his head and pour it on his feet. You have no sense what could have been done with that. Can you hear it? The, the anger, the, the resentment, the attack to someone who has just laid their heart bare and laid everything before Jesus. And then Jesus comes to her defense, defends her. I, I can almost, we don't know the physical position, but I almost feel like he, he almost steps between her. And we know that the person saying this because of the other gospel accounts is Judas. He's the one who's so indignant with Mary in wasting this. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Like This is where I just imagine him like stepping in front to protect from these accusations that are being hurled at this woman who has just laid her everything before Jesus. And he's like, why are you troubling her? Back off. She has done something beautiful. She has prepared my body for burial. Can you imagine what they're thinking at this point? Once again, Jesus talking about how he's going to die. It's like you call this act of worship worthless, but I say it has great value, and not only the value that she intended, because I don't know. We have no indication that she knew that this was preparing his body for burial. It was simply an act of worship. How God used that is as if he magnified this gift beyond her imagination. This expression of love that my imagination then began to wonder because it says that that pure nard has these earthy, musky tones with this floral accent. It filled the room. It was so strong. So much of it that would have gone into his hair and his beard. And it made me wonder, as the cat of nine tails ripped the flesh from his back, did the hint of this perfume hit his nostrils as it mixed with his sweat and blood? As he hung on the cross, did any of that fragrance remain? It was preparing his body for something that no one could fully imagine. And Jesus stands in her defense. And here's the thing that strikes me. He says to the disciples then that her actions will be remembered throughout history. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, what Mary did, this undignified, surrendered worship before God will be spoken of. 
did she have any imagination, any way to perceive that today, in this moment, once again, Jesus' words are being fulfilled? Once again, the story of Mary is being told. Once again, her act of worship is being remembered. Was it wasteful? Is worship wasted on Jesus? Never. And then it continues in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him, to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And when the religious leaders heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Can I just return to that? Think, think of how this is said. I feel like every word is just heavy with meaning. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Think about this, the public versus the private. Oh, Judas, one of the disciples of, of Jesus who's followed Jesus from the beginning. He's been there as Jesus raised a little girl to life, raised Lazarus to life. There, when the blind could see and the lame could walk, when demons were cast out of people, he heard Jesus speak with authority. This man has been following Jesus for three and a half years. Judas, one of the disciples, this was his public persona. But his heart was not following Jesus. He didn't just have a moment of weakness. It's not like the religious leaders came to him and in a moment of weakness, he's like, sure, I'll trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. No, Judas went to the religious leaders. He offered to betray Jesus. He made the offer. This made the religious leaders happy. And then Judas went back to Jesus, went back to them, looking for a time, knowing in his heart, can I betray him now? What about now? Can I betray him now? When's the best time for me to turn on Jesus? This is what was happening privately within his heart as he went through the same acts as the other disciples. There was this complete dichotomy in his heart. He's the one who had the outburst that was like, what a waste. What a waste to throw away $80,000 on Jesus. He's not worth it. Here's the crazy thing. John, in John chapter 12, tells us that the reason Judas was so upset, and was like, well, what about the poor? We could have given this as a gift. But John makes it clear, he didn't say this because Judas cared about the poor. He cared about it because he was the one in charge of the offering, and he was lining his pockets with other people's gifts. So he was thinking, 80,000 to Jesus, 10 for me, 70 for him, like whatever he was thinking through. He wanted to line his own pockets. He wasn't there to give or to worship Jesus. Here's the comparison. Mary gave everything. 
her security, her her inheritance, her dowry, $80,000 just laid out in worship to Jesus. Holding nothing back. Judas, it seems, was following Jesus for what he could gain, what he could get from him. A little bit of power, a little bit of position, because if Jesus is going to be king one day and I'll be by his side, then that means good for me, right? Here, I'll hold the money bags and line my own pockets. He was only following Jesus for what he could take from him to feed the appetites of his own cravings. Mary was saying Jesus is enough. It's not what he can give me. It's who he is. That's all I need. And Judas just wanted more. And he was willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So I went down one of my rabbit trails and had to look up the weight of silver at the time and what that would be valued at today. As of yesterday, this would have been valued at $305.72. So compare this. Because sometimes the numbers that, that we read, because we're not familiar with them, the denarii, the 30 pieces of silver, what does this mean? Mary pours out worship of $80,000. Judas betrays Jesus for three hundred. dollars He didn't even value Jesus to that degree. And the interesting thing is in Exodus 21, it says that if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the, their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a worker was accidentally killed... It was $300. That's how much Judas valued Jesus. That's what was in his heart. Not what could be seen, not the public persona. That's where his heart was. Mary valued Jesus with everything. This is the comparison that's being drawn. This is the story sandwich that is meant to be read all together. And then it kind of leads me in... In conclusion, as I've studied this passage and, and as I've reflected, one of the things that has been striking to me is especially in that middle section, Mark doesn't give names. Like I've had to pull that in from Matthew and John and other sources. We didn't know it was Mary. It doesn't say the disciple who said these things was Judas. Why is that? And we don't know why. We do know that this story is meant to be read together. Right? But I think part of the reason is because the way the story is being told is it is inviting us into the story with a heart of introspection. Like, where am I? Where's my heart in this? It's not just their story. It's not just what they did. It's what about my heart? Where am I there? And I think the first question Does your public persona align with your private life? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, what do you want people to see and perceive about you? What image of yourself are you projecting, trying to shape the way they see you? Like the religious leaders, right? 
They don't, wanna, they don't want people to know that they're meeting in secret to kill Jesus. They want people to think that, no, we're, we're remembering and we're repenting and we're rejoicing in God's provision. And they're leading them through these acts of worship. Meanwhile, his own heart, it, uh, it's full of anger and hatred and murder. The same thing can happen for us. We can go through the motions this morning and say, praise Jesus, worship, listen, engage afterwards. But all the while, our hearts saturated with bitterness and anger toward others, towards God, whatever that might be. And it's an invitation to say, am I performing this morning? Or am I being authentic? Like the, the way this is talked about for pastors, this is something that, that's close to my heart because it'll talk about front of stage and back of stage. Like th- there's a danger I have, right, in coming out here under the light, standing before you to proclaim God's Word, that this is not a performance. A sermon is not a public performance of God's Word. A sermon should be a public display of devotion that is born out of love and humbleness before God, that is then laid before the people as a sacrifice. But the danger is, is that it becomes an act, that it becomes a performance, and we're all in danger of this. We all have this sense that the person who we present to others on the stage of life is different than the person when we're alone backstage. Like, I long for in myself an an authenticity. But let's be honest, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because I want your approval. Like, I have to fight with myself on this. I imagine we all do. We all long for belonging. We all long for acceptance. But there's a fear that if you really knew me, that wouldn't happen. And so there's this invitation as we remember the timing, as we remember the mercy of God in the substitute that God has provided us in Jesus, who He is and what He has done. And so what I can do, what I have to do, is admit that sometimes it's more a performance. I have to admit it. I can't just say no, I, because I know I shouldn't, therefore I don't know because I know I shouldn't, I know I do. And sometimes we have to come to a place in our own life where we say, I admit that what I present to others is not always true of what's happening in my heart. And as I confess that before God, I bring that before Him. And I say, Lord, would you crucify the imposter? What are the longings that are motivating it? See, it's not just the imposter, the performance that I'm bringing in surrender before God. It's also the longings that's behind it. What is it that I'm wanting from other people that's causing me to perform? This is where you have to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart to say, what is it? Is it a sense of validation? Is it approval? What is it that you're longing for that's feeding this performance? Because it needs to die. 
The performance, the imposter needs to die lest it take over. And we bring that to the foot of the cross and we say, here's what's feeding it. Lord, help me to find my satisfaction in you in these longings. That we would rest in the mercy of Jesus because he's our provision. He's the one in whom we can take shelter and rest. Does your public persona, who you are between friends here on Sunday, does that align with who you are in private? Or are you just acting? The second question is this. What do you value most in life and death? There's a sense of value that we see in all of these stories, right? Judas valuing $300 more than he valued Jesus, willing to betray. Mary valuing Jesus more than her security and life savings and $80,000 that she just lays out in worship before Jesus. How, what do you value most in life and in death? I think chapter 13 and where we've been the last two weeks are helpful for us to ask because there's been warnings to guard our hearts, to to stay awake, to keep our eyes open because there's things that are coming that if we value our friends more than Jesus, we will compromise truth to keep our friends and lose Christ. Because it says, friends, will walk away because they are offended that you follow Jesus. What do you value more? Your friends or Jesus? It says family will walk away because they are offended that you hold to the name and follow Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, Divide it because of Jesus Christ. What do you value more? What about persecution? When the culture hates, when the culture belittles those who follow Jesus, we say, well, my reputation, I can't sacrifice my reputation. I'm just going to keep that private. I'm going to keep this personal. And we begin to live two different lives. What you value matters. And it's a question I think we need to ask ourselves, what do you value in life and death? And we're invited once again to find our rest in the mercies of God. That sometimes I have to lay down my own heart before God and say, Lord, I want to value you more than everything. But sometimes I struggle. That doesn't mean it's easy. Lord, help my heart to value you. This is how I pray. It's not like just, oh, because I said this true, then I don't have feelings, and I always value Christ more than everything. No, I have to fight for this. I have to say, Lord, this is hard right now. I want to value you above everything. And so, Lord, help my heart. I need you to lead and bend my affections to value what is most valuable, and that is you. 
And this is where I'm struggling. This is what that looks like. And I want to end with one final question because of where we began. In whom or in what will you find your shelter? Think of the Passover. Of Jew and Egyptian alike, you will either stand on your own before the final judgment of a holy God, or you will stand under the shelter of God's provision of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Are you resting under the shelter and provision that God has given us in Jesus? Or are you standing on your own efforts? I want to invite you that after the service, I'm going to just stand off to the side. If you have never trusted in Jesus, and God is prompting you today to say, I need to find my shelter in Christ. My heart's a mess. I don't understand everything. But I'll take a step toward surrender. I want to invite you to come over and let me pray with you. Or if anything else from the message is bringing conviction or comfort in your heart and you want prayer, please come, let us pray with you. You're not alone in this journey. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word, for, for the reminder that our hearts can easily wonder. Lord, that you are calling us to surrender with authenticity and faith and devotion. And Lord, I, we desire that. Would you help our hearts? Would you help our unbelief? Would you help our insecurities in the things that we hold back or the other things that we want to trust in? This security blanket, something we can fall back on. And would you help us to go with abandon before your feet, laying everything before you? Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you help us to see the, the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.